Series 5 was recorded in March 2021 over the internet. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to a special series of the Rural Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt of Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. For 65 years, the Rural Court Theatre in London has led the world in the production of new plays and the discovery and championing of new playwrights. The Stucker Market of the Theatre Treffen is an annual gathering of new writers and theatre makers. Every year since 1978, writers are chosen by Stucker Market jurors from hundreds of applications to visit Berlin and perform, talk about and celebrate their work. With the 2019 Stuckermark, the competition was launched for the first time worldwide. In this short series of podcasts, the Royal Court Theatre and the Stuckermark collaborate for the first time. This year, as Berlin, like the rest of the world, manages the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the six writers whose work has been chosen will be discussing their work in this special series of five hour-long online conversations. One of the most exasperating myths in the various narratives that surround new playwriting culture is that playwrights ever burst into the playwriting world from nowhere. A prominent literary figure at the Royal Court used to talk about such hypothetical playwrights as coming from Mars. The truth is that those playwrights who arrive suddenly into the new writing scene have often spent years working with tenacity and determination on their craft and process before they appear to emerge from outer space and take the world by surprise. Occasionally, over the past couple of decades, it has been a privilege to watch some writers make that journey. One striking example for me is the playwright Eve Lee, whose Midnight Movie is one of the Jorah choices in this year's Stuckermarkt. I first met Eve in the early years of the last decade, when she sent her play Stoneface to the Lyric Hammersmith while I was associate there. The play was striking for the clarity of its vision and the muscular poetry of its writing. We met to talk about her work and have stayed in touch over the last decade. I am proud to think of her as a friend. Over that time, she's written at least a play a year. Receiving her work has always been a joy. But there was a moment two or three years ago with her play Salty Arena and The Trick when it became clear that the years of work had started to pay off. Here were plays of force and confidence. The lyrical poetry was now being matched by a sense of theatrical adventure and musical clarity and cogency of idea. And then in 2019, she appeared from nowhere, a playwright coming from outer space to hit our major stages. While earlier productions had caught some people's eye, Spooky Action at a Distance was produced by the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama at the Gate Theatre. Roy Alexander Weiss directed Stoneface at the Fimbra. It was in 2019 that the trick premiered at the celebrated Bush Theatre. Salty Irina was shortlisted for the Bromwood Prize and also that Rachel Bagshaw directed Midnight Movie at the Royal Court. Lee is a writer of range and conviction. Her work is defined by a formal exploration as much as an intellectual one. Her theatre is built on an understanding of the importance of the presence of the audience in her work. She invents games for them to play. She imagines magic tricks for them to take part in. She makes music for them to listen to. She is a writer of real political exploration. In recent years, her commitment to the investigation of issues of ability and access in the theatre have been integrated into her work in a way that is as theatrical and playful as it is serious and nuanced. She is examined as a journalist as well as a dramatist the repeated depiction of violence against women in drama. She's written with compassion and understanding of the experience of the Eastern European diaspora, a diaspora that her own family was informed by and built around. If 2019 was a breakthrough year, then 2020 may have been an unwelcome interruption. But one of the most surprising oddities of that baffling pandemic and one of the most playful explorations of theatre in its lockdown form was the series of emails she sent headed Invisible Summer, gifts, short films, poems, pieces of music that explore the territory surrounding Midnight Movie. 
Midnight Movie is a play about the internet. It is also a play that seeks to dramatize the form of the internet. It's a play about how we can become addicted to the solace and titillation, the voyeuristic horrors and the sense of community, however dislocated or fictional or untrustworthy the internet can offer. It is a play that spans continents in the way the internet does and which reshapes and reimagines itself with every refresh the way the internet does. It tells the story of a night of migraine-induced insomnia for the unnamed narrator of the play that seems to be a fictionalised version of Lee herself. It returns to those investigations of diaspora, disability and voyeurism. It builds those investigations into its very form. Its opening stage directions insist that it should be performed by multiple people, ideally with visible and invisible disabilities, that the performers and artistic team should consider some of the languages of accessibility, sign languages, captioning, audio description, live voice, and how they might be part of telling this story. Returning to our old email conversations in preparation for this interview, I found one from 2013 in which Eve exclaimed how much she had loved visiting that year's Theatre Treffen and the Stuckermarket there, and wondering if I knew any ways that she may be able to return. I'm thrilled that the way she managed to get back there, even if only virtually, is through the calibre and brilliance of her own work. Eve Lee, welcome to the Royal Court and welcome to the Stuckermarket. I'm really resisting. I just like, all I want to do is like scream. <laughs> How are you doing, mate? You're right. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm deeply embarrassed and really honored. How are <laughs> oh. you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really happy to see you. I'm really happy to see you. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> What's fun about that introduction is it didn't need to lie about any of it. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's been such a, it's funny doing these things because on occasion the nature of theatre as a village means necessarily that um, I do talk to people who are friends of mine um, and sometimes they were successful established writers before they were friends of mine, like talking to Joe Pennell or Dennis Kelly or Lucy Preble or whatever, but it's really fun to be able to talk to you and having seen you from the very start of your working life. Being a real baby playwright. Yeah. The, um, I, you know how that gone. You're going to say something. I can tell because I can see you. <laughs> it's also really fun because um, uh, Emily Legg, uh, the ghost in the machine of this series, uh, is also the uh, was the co-sound designer of Midnight Movie. Um, so it's fun that this is wound around to the same team. Producer again. Emily. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, she's she, she's a she's a rock star of the sound world. The, um, <laughs> you know, you know what my first question is going to be. I know you know what my first question is going to be because this is the same first question that I always ask everybody. Because I have, uh, you know, as, as, as I've said on many occasions, literally no imagination. Um, <laughs> um, when was when was the first time that you went to the theatre, Eve? You know, um, I don't. I think it could be no. Uh, I don't really remember is the answer. Um, uh, I The thing that I kind of like flash back to um, um, like a Hanukkah play from Hebrew school uh, when I was pretty small. Uh, and I also flash back to the first time I was like, is it possible that the first time I went to see a play, I was actually in the play? Um, <laughs> and I don't think that is possible. Um but yeah, like my like earliest vivid memories of theater are uh, seeing like a, a Hanukkah play uh, at Hebrew school and being in a production of um, Peter Pan uh, in which I played Mrs. Darling because I was the tallest. Uh, so I played the grown up, um, and I, uh, I like tripped over my own skirt uh, really spectacularly and fell. Uh, and uh, everybody laughed, and it was like it was. And then I, I did it again <laughs> because I was a real show off. You did it um, because you liked the laughter. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that was, and yeah, it would have been five or six. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, where did you go to school? Where was your Hebrew school? 
my Hebrew school was in New York. Uh, it was uh, Temple Emmanuel Hebrew School. Uh, you may, might guess by the fact that it's called Emmanuel, um, that it's like, it, it was just really like my dad used to call it an Episcopalian synagogue. <laughs> That's a, that's a theological joke that my atheist idiocy doesn't understand. What? I'm really sorry. Yeah. So Emmanuel is a Christian name. Why right. was that? Like, why was the synagogue right. called Emmanuel? Um, because it was trying to pretend to be a church. Um, it was like the most deeply assimilated space I've, I've I think I've ever been in. Um, uh, but yeah, but they they had a, a fun Hanukkah play, and some of it is still in my head. <laughs> what's the, what's the form of a Hanukkah play? I've never seen a Hanukkah play. Um, I mean, a Hanukkah play. There are Jewish holidays where it is traditional to put on plays, but Hanukkah actually isn't one of them. I think it was. I think in the in the tradition of the Episcopalian um, synagogue, it was like a way of sort of being like. Oh, you might have like Christmas shows and stuff, but we have a Hanukkah show. <laughs> and it's about a potato. <laughs> like literally. It's about Sounds a potato great. that gets turned into uh, um, a candle holder, a menorah. <laughs> was it really about a potato? That yeah, it was. In... It was really, there was a song about a potato. It was about a potato, yeah. Wow. Um, what, what were you like at school? Um, I was. Uh, I was a huge nerd, uh, surprising, I guess, no one who knows me. Um, yeah, I was a real weirdo. Um, mm. And um, like my early years of school were actually, were pretty nice though. Uh, and I think it was because um, there was sort of a like acknowledgement that even though I was a weird nerd, I was the best at coming up with game with like fun games that were like world building games. Um, and then like, we got a little bit older and it was like kind of imagining in public, like, wasn't really as, was like even more like embarrassing, uh, and like, uh, you know, kind of, um, the games that already had rules like dodgeball or whatever, uh, <laughs> became like the games, um, right. that everybody wanted to play. And, uh, and yeah. And then I was like, I, I like fully moved into the nerd space at that time. In, fully into the nerd space. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be, uh, that could be quite a good album. If you album title, if you ever decide to make an album moving fully into the nerd space, were you, were you, were you, were, um, were you a writer at school? Uh, yeah, I guess I was, I was about to say no. Um, but, um, I think that's just the way I remember it. I think I probably was a writer at school. Yeah, no. And, um, I wrote poetry at school actually. Um, and my mom really encouraged that. Mm. Um, uh, and I think that was, but yeah, I didn't, I, I, uh, weirdly didn't, I sort of didn't want to think of myself as a writer in any way. Um, oh. until, um, until I was kind of in my mid twenties. Right. Um, oh. but yeah. The, um, uh, your, your, I, th I think it's right that your family had a background in the arts. The arts was something that was present in your home. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, both of my parents work in the arts. Um, and I also have an older brother who, uh, who worked in the arts as well. Um, Can I ask uh, what, they, yeah. what they do, what they did, what they do. Uh, so my dad, uh, was, uh, he did a lot of different things in the music industry, but he always used to say that if you woke him up in the middle of the night and asked him what he did, uh, he was a composer. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, but yeah, he was a musician. He was a composer. Um, mm. and, uh, my mom is a painter. Was that exciting to be surrounded by that creativity? Did it yeah. empower your nerd space? It totally did. It massively empowered my nerd space. Um, and, and, all the, and it's actually funny because like my, my mom is a real nerd and a weirdo and my dad was weird in many ways, but was also like a really cool person. Uh, he like kind of didn't understand how he'd like hatched this like nerd array around him. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, no, uh, massively. And also they were very, like, they hadn't necessarily had a lot of encouragement to be creative when they were growing up. Right. Um, and so it was hugely important to them both um, that we were exposed to the arts um, and that we were kind of empowered to 
do our thing. Although they also, they also had like opinions about um, kind of when and where and how certain things should happen that, uh, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to try and, and parent us well and not make us like too, too independent and too like weird alien children um, in terms of like, I don't know what we were making or how we were making it. Um, and that was also like a dynamic is like, yeah, their sense of how things should be done. Yeah. Do you like their stuff? Do you like your mom's art and your dad's music? I do. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that uh, in a lot of ways, um, well, I think it's natural if you're in a, you know, in a, in a family where uh, more than one generation are artists, like yeah. to sort of in some way define yourself against the kinds of things that right. they make. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think there's some degree, cause my, my little brother also as a, is an opera singer. Yeah. Um, and I think there are certain ways in which like the way he's a musician is very different from the way that my dad was a musician. Um, mm. And like the role that, music and visuals play in my work is different from uh the kinds of work that they make but I do really like my mom something that was really sweet um and really significant I think is that she always even when I was really tiny she always asked me what I thought of her work Mm. um and she like and she would tell me as well like when I was like pretty young you know eight or nine or something like that she would like be like, oh, I like that. That's a good point. Like she would always, she always will like, um, yeah, she's really, she's an interesting role model, I think, as far as taking feedback because she will take feedback from fucking anyone, but she really knows what makes, what's the right thing and what's not the right thing. Right. Uh, and being able to see her go like, ah, okay. Rather than, oh, that's what it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I think has been a real role model in terms Absolutely. of how I conduct myself. What what um what kind of stuff were you reading or watching or or thinking about that you discovered yourself? What was your like imaginative terrain in in your nerd space as like a teenager? When you as were, a teenager, or yeah, when you when you were in New York because you lived in New York until what age? What age were you in New 18. York until? Right. So mm-hmm. while you were living in New York in your teen years, what kind of stuff were you engaging with? Well. Um, I was really into punk, uh, which, uh, yeah, drove my family appropriately crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually, I mean, something, I don't know if you realize this, but CBGB's, uh, RIP, um, Mm. they, uh, they let you in at 16. Um, you can't get served at the bar, but they would let you in for gigs at 16 so CBGBs, um, for people who don't know, is the heart of the New York punk scene from the mid-70s up to when? When did it close? It closed... In the 2000s, I think. Oh, I don't know, maybe later than that. I think yeah. in the 2000s. And so um, did you go to CBGBs? We went all the time. Um, oh. And also our friend... Uh, uh, yeah, our friend's dad uh, ran a poetry club directly across the street um, called the Bowery Poetry Club. And we used to go there. I think a I've lot. heard of the Bowery Poetry Club. Is that not kind of like really celebrated? Yeah, it was. Shit. Um, that's that's like the coolest teenage life you could ever hope to have. But like, <laughs> you need to understand how deeply uncool I was while I was having it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and I had like, I had yeah, I had I went through like, I had blue hair for a long time. And I kind of keep always saying to myself, it was like cobalt blue. I keep always saying to myself, I'll go back to blue. And I, I kind of never quite have, but, but I would like to. Um, uh, uh, who did you who do you remember seeing at CBGB's? Did you have a, a, a particular kind of favorite gig there? Or? Well, actually, I mean, listen, actually, this was not really a favorite gig. Um, it's just in retrospect, it's like um, not super long before Joey Ramone passed we saw Joey Ramone there. Uh, um, uh, and it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind it was kind of weird. We were like the youngest people in the audience by like 40 years. Like <laughs> it was, you know, um, but it was also really kind of beautiful. Yeah. Uh, like surprisingly lo-fi. Um, uh, the bathrooms were still totally disgusting. They're the mm. second most disgusting bathrooms 
I've ever experienced in my life. Um, uh, and the most disgusting being, um, the bathrooms in a borstal in Bulgaria, uh, that I made, uh, a show in a couple of years ago now, like four years ago now, um, which are like bar setting for really disgusting. I used to just, I used to just carry in like a big, um, it was a derelict. It wasn't a bor- It wasn't a borstal in action. It was a derelict former borstal, yeah. uh, and I used to just carry in like a big thing of Dettol when I would use uh, the toilets. Anyway, why are we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really uh, because it's it sets a context for the disgusting caliber of CBGBs yeah, in which absolutely. you saw Joey Ramone in the last months of his yeah, life. Literally, like he died very soon after. Uh, we didn't know that he, we thought he was just old. Like we did not know that he was dying. Um, what a thing uh, to have seen though. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I'm really glad that we thought we almost didn't, we almost like couldn't be fucked. We almost just like ate French fries instead. Um, <laughs> fucking idiots. Anyway. Um, where uh, did you go when you were 18? Um, sorry. Where did you go when you were 18? When I was 18, I moved to the UK um, I went to Cambridge University, which was quite the culture shock, I must <laughs> say. Yeah, having, having kind of grown up and to some extent, like, I don't know, having like chosen the downtown punk art scene um, uh, in my teen years. Uh, but my parents were very proud um, right. and really excited. Um, yeah. And yeah, and then I had a... Um, I had a really horrible time, <laughs> um, uh, but that was very character building. Right. Um, and, uh, and then I moved to London uh, okay. and I've been in London or the Southeast ever since. Right. Or the, the East uh, of England, I guess I shouldn't call it the Southeast, but yeah. What did you study in Cambridge? I studied history. Right. And I know this is something we have in common. Yeah. I, I think it's been really fundamental to my thinking about the world. Yeah, I think so too. I think for, for me as well. Has it informed um, your writing, do you think? Yeah, a lot. Um, I think for one thing, I think that in, on a few different levels. Uh, one, I think that, um, so I think the thing about studying history is that um, you're really invited to consider that human beings can behave in all sorts of different ways. And I also think that's like, that's the thing about moving countries as well mm. um, is uh, that all sorts of things that are just like, well, obviously this is how the world works. This is just how it always is yeah. become, it's becomes clear that they're total lies. Right. Um, right. And that's, yeah, yeah, like moving from the U S to the UK, will do that. Like, because both of them have a set of orthodoxies that overlap, but are also significantly different, especially in 2003 when I emigrated. Um, yeah. and I think they've converged a little bit. Um, but anyway, um, and, um, yeah. And I also think that's the case when you're, when you're studying history, you just, you just realize that there are all kinds of, that we are capable of imagining the world, um, in a much bigger and just wildly different way um, than uh, than we normally kind of yeah. give credence to, yeah. uh, and that is huge politically and huge creatively. And also, it's just about human behavior. It's just studying human behavior, isn't it? It's interesting. Yeah. The shit that people do. Totally. Either that we either we we either imagine the shit that people do, or or we read about the shit that people did. <laughs> either way, it's that exactly. investigation. The um, do you remember like specific examples of that jarring sense of uh, realizing the things that you thought were innate were actually culturally specific from that moment of moving from New York to Cambridge? Were there specific things where you thought, God, I never knew that this was yeah. possible? Loads. Um, I would say the NHS was a big one. I sort of knew about it beforehand, but I think like the just like, no, healthcare is just free. Everyone accepts this as normal. Healthcare is just free. Like I actually had like a, I mean, this was years later, um, but I, I had my appendix out and I called my mom, um, like as I was, as it was clear that I was going to need to get my appendix out. And I was like, don't worry about it, but like, this is what's going on. Um, and, uh, my mom was like, do you have a credit card? 
or just something that we can, <laughs> I was like, I don't need a credit card, mama. Like it's free. And she was like, even for you. And I was like, yeah, no, it's, it's free. Um, and she was like, it was just like, oh my God. Like she, I'll never forget like the silence at the end of the phone call. Um, uh, oh, bless her. Moving. Um, but yeah, there was like tons and tons of stuff and also stuff on like the other, the other side. So like, um, uh, like somebody, uh, a friend of mine asked me, um, if I, uh, if I like had to herd cows, uh, like as part of my like morning routine. And I was like, yeah, I had to herd cows over the Brooklyn bridge. Like it's really tough because there are like a lot of cars as well. <laughs> what a friend in England asked yeah, you. Yeah, a fucking Cambridge undergraduate. Yeah. What, 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 what? <laughs> and then like somebody else, he, um, uh, he like, just very slowly and painstakingly explained the 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 existence of uh, secondhand bookstores to me. <laughs> that's that's and very I, like, generous. I just, that's a very, very generous thing very to do, right? <laughs> important, actually, important to <laughs> yeah. know about. Um, yeah. But I was like, it was just, it was very interesting because I was like, are these people all insane, or am I insane? Do you know what I mean? Because it was like they were so a hundred percent sure that they because because American culture is so penetrating, they yeah. just thought that they knew. And also because they were Cambridge undergrads, they thought that they knew. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and it was actually like, um, yeah, it was a, a, a formative and, uh, and really useful, important experience yeah. to sort of have people be really convinced of a reality that you know to be false. Um, uh, and like everyone around you be convinced of a reality that you know to be false. And I feel like that's really impacted my writing, uh, ever since. I feel like that's in a lot of ways, that's very often the situation I'm trying to dramatize. I think that's a really brilliant self-analysis. I was exactly thinking that describes nearly every Evely play <laughs> that I know. <laughs> that, that, that kind of bafflement at the insistence of other people's reality that you understand to be mythical or 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 much more fragile than they perceive it to be and that's really really fascinating did you write at cambridge uh well uh, i wrote stand-up comedy believe it or not did you um, yeah did you perform it as well yeah Shit. <laughs> that's amazing how was that it was okay. It was okay. I was like, I did a few like footlight smokers and I was always one of like only two girls. Like for some reason it was just, there was always two girls. And, uh, sometimes I was one of those two girls. Um, but I like, I'm really not a, I don't know. I, I felt like my jokes were, were okay, but I didn't like performing. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And, and that was actually the only creative writing I did. I did a lot of like essay writing. Um, but that was the only creative writing I did. It's really interesting to me that you, when you were talking about writing as a teenager or writing as a child in New York, that you said that you told yourself for a long time that you didn't write. Yeah. When, 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 when would you have told yourself that you started writing? Um, when I was 26. Right. That's um, quite specific. Yeah. <laughs> I think was... I, oh, sorry. No, go on. Tell, tell me the story of, of that. Um, uh, well, I just, I think what it was is I ran out of excuses, uh, to not try to write a play. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so I tried to write a play, um, and I, and that was also the age that I got onto the, I, I literally wrote my first play because the Royal Court Young Writers Program had a deadline in five days and right. I was feeling really like depressed and it was like February and I was like, okay, so for these five days in February, I'm going to write a play uh, and, um, and then I'm going to send it off and, uh, and we'll see. Um, and actually that play uh, was, it was called Silent Planet and um, it was, uh, it was, it what got me onto the Young Writers Program and the person who admitted me to the Young Writers Program was Jude Christian. Whoa. And yeah. so the Stucker market creates its own circle. It's <laughs> yeah. true. Um, That's really lovely. 
And it was also, it was put on at the Finbra. It was my, it was my first produced play as well. I, I feel suddenly profoundly ignorant that that's a play that I don't know. I don't or think you've read it. My memory is obliterated and I don't remember reading it. I think I you. haven't sent it to you. I think, I think, yeah. Right. But can I just go back to that moment? Because that's quite a peculiar feeling for a 26-year-old have because to have, because most 26-year-olds don't feel compelled to write the play that they've been resisting all this life. What was it that led you to think, well, I better write that play now? There must have been other experiences of theatre or kind of like... Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I, I had been, I was trying to, I was trying to start a career as a director. Um, right. And I had like, and I had done like a bit of like, I'd done some ASM jobs, I'd done some assisting jobs. I had directed um, a couple of fringe plays um, and um, it was just like, it just sucked. Being a young director totally sucks. Um, uh, and also, so uh, like two other big also's. One is that I don't see very well. And I feel like staging was, uh, and like, yeah, just the visual language of, I don't know, like the, the practical way that the visual language of, of staging in plays needs to work was like, I just had too idiosyncratic and understanding of what that is yeah. um and i and i didn't really want to be responsible for it even when i was responsible for it because i was the director <laughs> yeah. um and um then uh also i think at the same time like i think it doesn't suit my ego to be a director i think i think being a writer is much much more suitable to my ego uh i think i prefer to be like the person who doesn't say very much in the back, but like also sort of holds all the cards. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have to be the one who's like, um, who like keeps everybody captivated. I can just be like the one who's just like, yeah. Like I think some people have egos of actors and and maybe that's what makes them actors. You know what I mean? They, they yeah. want to be looked at and they want to be applauded and they want to play and they want to make a mess. Um, uh, and some people like want to be like the puppet master. Not that that's, what a director necessarily is, but I think, uh, yeah. And, and some people it's like, um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before that like being the writer is like being the rhythm section. Um, and that it's like, not the, it's like the, 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 the beat holding it all down, yeah. but it's not necessarily like the place that you look, uh, if you're watching. And I think that's, I think that really suits my I don't know. I, I love that space, actually. That's a really lovely analogy. We've talked as well about the uh, the way in which our sight has a, a affected our theatre and affected our writing. And I would completely say the reason I've never really directed is because my vision... I think we've had competitions to see who has the worst vision, me or you. And I think... I can't remember. I think, I think we've both got strengths in that competition. <laughs> I agree. I agree. That's my perception. <laughs> the... Um, so what was uh, what was the Royal Court Young Writers program like? Uh, it was really good. It was really um, well. I tell you what, it was it was really good. Leo is amazing. Leo Butler, Leo Butler, um, run the a course, god among yeah. men, um, uh, and a lot of the people on the course were like. In fact, I would say everybody was super talented. Like everybody was right. super talented. Um, uh, there was also a bit of a weird atmosphere because it was not that long after that face had blown up really Bonnie big. Stenham's play, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there was a bit of a reality show feel that Leo did everything in his power to diminish. Right. Um, but there was slightly a who's going to be the next Polly Stenham. Like yeah. whoever talks most in the room will be the next Polly Stenham <laughs> kind right. of atmosphere. Right. Um, uh, but there were, yeah, like, there were lots of incredibly gifted writers, some of whom have continued uh, in playwriting and others have moved on to other forms of, uh, like there's a, a really fantastic drag queen, Virgin Extravaganza, who um, was part of that group and, and was is an amazing writer. Um, yeah. uh, and um, uh, John O'Donovan, the playwright, uh, was yeah. also part of that group. Uh, and yeah, has, does just wonderful work. Yeah. Um, uh, and those are the people who are popping into my head offhand, but I think there may be. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, by the time you've done that 
course, by the time you'd written, please remind me the name of the play again. I want to call Silent it Silent Planet. No Silent Planet, yeah. Uh, and that had had its life at Fimbra. Were you very confident that writing for theatre was the thing that you were going to do? I think it was actually, well, the thing I was going to do. I'm still not confident about that, man. No, me, I'm not either. And myself. <laughs> I still think I'm going to play for Man United eventually. Eventually, man. Eventually. <laughs> um, but I do think that there is something something that I felt like I learned from, from you, actually, is that um, like playwriting is a practice um, and that you can keep practicing uh, and then and keep making things. And that's really what I want to do. I really want to keep practicing and I really want to keep making things. But that at sort of at any point, that it's not like an identity that you take on. It's like, uh, it's like you continue your practice and hopefully you get a bit better. I was talking to, to Nia from Tania about this uh, in the conversation that some people will listen to after we've had this conversation. So they'll have a weird reversal of their own chronology. But uh, just remember, reminding myself that the point is the verb, not the noun, that it's about writing, not being a writer. Mm-hmm. I think it's yes. been re- really yes. helpful, really helpful to my kind of my working life, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you... Um, uh, you know, because we we want to. I want to talk about Midnight Movie, and we're here to talk about Midnight Movie in particular. But would you say my description of those years between reading Stoneface and that kind of what felt at a time like every time you sent me an email with a play, I'd be like, "Fuck, Eve smashed it again. She's on fire." <laughs> those that those yeah. what you that know really that, a lot. <laughs> it was. And I've, I've talked about that to other writers. I've talked to other writers about, I tell you, there are some writers, they work away for five or six years, and then suddenly they they crack something. And Evely is a writer who did that. So I've, I've talked about you behind your back to other beginning writers uh, as, a, as a totem of encouragement. What was those... Really what, were, what were those years like for you? Was Because I imagine it's a frustrating time as well as an investigative time. Yeah, I think that that's, those are fair ways of describing it. Um, uh, yeah, um, but also um, I would say that, I would say that one of the things, like I was, I was learning a lot during that time and an important thing um, that obviously like you just keep learning and learning, but um but that I was kind of moving from zero pretty much um, uh, is like how to be a collaborator. Um, And I feel like a lot of that time was spent uh, sort of frustrated in devising rooms sometimes, but like also the the flip side of that is like, I don't know, not being a good enough collaborator. Um, And like sometimes like shutting my mouth in rehearsal rooms and sort of bottling it and not being a very good collaborator. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like to, to know how to, to know how to support other people's creative endeavors is uh, essential if you're writing for performance. And I feel like if I'm thinking about that time, um, like that's, that's one of the things that I was really learning and I didn't necessarily know. And yeah. And I was also like, I feel like my work is good enough. Why isn't it happening? Or, um, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and now and it's easy to be patient in retrospect, uh, but I wasn't necessarily <laughs> patient at the time, you know. Yeah, I do. I, yeah, yeah, I know that feeling well. The um, tell me about the starting point of Midnight Movie. Well, um, the brilliant Louise Stevens, who is now the artistic director of Playwright Studio Scotland, but used to work at the court as, a, as the associate deputy literary manager. I'm not sure. I forget exactly her title. Um, after um, Spooky Action at a Distance, which you mentioned earlier, she was like, we can't commission you, but we are going to send you to Cove Park, um, uh, which is an amazing kind of residency place in Scotland uh, for two weeks. Um, and we're just going to pay you to do whatever you want there. Um, uh, and, um, I was like, amazing. Okay. So I'm just going to, first of all, Cove Park is insanely beautiful. Um, 
partly because it's really near Trident. So people aren't allowed to uh, develop the land around there. So it's very wooded because it's wow. all owned by the Ministry of Defense. And that was really like, we would watch the nuclear submarines like go in and out of the lock and just be like, oh, wow. anyway. So we were all in that. It's amazing. It, yeah, it really is amazing. Um, everybody go to Cove Park if you can. The people um, in Germany listening to this might not know, but Trident is the UK's nuclear submarine, which yes. is which is based right. in, in Scotland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were um, in this most beautiful place watching the nuclear submarine submerge. And <laughs> again, an it feels like an evilly playing totally, itself. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, I'm so in the right place. Um, uh, and yeah, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, whatever my body wants to do, I'm going to let it do. Uh, if I want to sleep, I'm going to sleep. If I want to eat, I'm going to eat. I'm going to, if I want to walk or write or anything like, Mm -hmm. and yeah, basically I stayed up all night writing, um, this, uh, really weird 12 pages of something. Uh, and I sent it to Louise and, uh, Louise was like, this is, this is far too weird, (laughs) uh, but there's energy to it and I hope you develop it, but we can't develop it here. Um, And, um, yeah, and, uh, that continues like an experience that I've had of, uh, every, I think every play that I've had produced, uh, has previously been rejected by one of the people who, or one of the partners who's ultimately produced it. Um, anyway. That's, that's, that's a, some, it's a kind of a, a rather encouraging tale in that in itself, that yeah. eventually the theatre that rejects your play will eventually produce it. They just don't know it. I would it. not encourage people to believe that, but it is, it is consistent. And there's also some, some things that aren't announced yet, like that's the case as well. Great. Great. Um, oh, that's really lovely. Um, but yeah, um, I was just like, I don't know. I was just, um, yeah, like watching the nuclear submarines and also like the fog come down from the lock and also still fucking awake and in pain uh, mm. and kind of actually uh, far away from the internet um, mm. because uh, the internet use is very restricted at Cove Park. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and just like, uh, and, um, and then Matt Maltby, uh, who's now the producer uh, at Payne's Plow, but then was a freelance producer. I sent it to him and he was like, let's do it. Let's make it happen. Um, and he wrote the grant applications, uh, which would, I really think it just would have, you know, like gone into the drawer, like a lot of other things that I think are good. Hmm. Um, if it wasn't for Matt Maltby um, and, and the funding and development that he was able to get. Uh, and yeah, and I sent it to Rachel Bagshaw and Rachel was really key, um, in, um, dramaturging it. And so was Matilda Ibini. Like some of the, some of the original ideas had come from conversations with Matilda anyway. Um, Rachel direct, Rachel directed the production, the world premiere of the play yes. eventually at the Royal Court. Yes. And Matilda... Um, was the dramaturg. Was the dramaturg, yeah. Was this, were, were you sending Rachel and Matt and Matilda those 10 pages of unconscious splurge that you sent to Louise, or had you worked on it? No, it was still those. I think I read those. In my memory, I yes, read those. I feel but, like yeah. You did. And yeah. I remember thinking they were really cool. And their, go, their presence is still in the play, like the tone of the play feels as though it comes from that same exploration. Yeah, I yeah. yeah, I think so. So what was the development process? What did you do with Rachel or with Matilda? Um, well, um, so Rachel just had a, Rachel really wanted the play to be itself. She really understood what the play was, even if she didn't necessarily know beat by beat, or, you know, she couldn't have written an essay on it, do you know what I mean? But she just yeah. could smell what the play was. Um, and she could really you, wanted could, it to be itself. Could you smell what it was? How how aware of, of its identity uh, were really. you? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, a little bit. I don't know. I could smell what it wasn't, maybe, but I couldn't necessarily yeah. smell what it was. Yeah. Um, um, and Matilda uh, as well. Like, Matilda was, I felt like Rachel was like, yeah, I really enjoy how far out this piece of text is. I'm not scared. I'm like, I'm thrilled by it. Like I want it to, I want it to be more itself. Uh, and Matilda was also happy with uh, the way in which it's formally unusual in the, in the British theater landscape, but she's also, 
she's like an amazing like pop storyteller. Um, I mean, she's also like fully from space, um, but like in that way that someone can be that that when someone is fully from space, uh, there's like a degree of like uh, phenomenal, weird, inexplicable uh, influences, but also you know space stories are like really classic stories of discovery. Like she's she's really you know, like quest narratives and stuff. Right. Um, and like the kinds of storytelling that you, you have in, um, uh, in video games and stuff like they're, yeah. they're really deep in her, like in her DNA as an artist. Right. Um, and I felt like those two influences were, uh, yeah, I feel like they're really legible in the play. Mm. Um, and That's I also really feel like they were, they were, par- they're both of them are maybe part of me and, and part of the text as well. Yeah. Um, so you developed the playing workshop with Matilda and with Rachel but also um we did an art so like that was how I I like wrote some more stuff and sent it to them and they told me their thoughts and then we had an in-person R&D with what turned out to be the original cast um which is uh Tom Penn and Nadia Nataraja yeah um and they were like we I don't know. We didn't necessarily think they were, you know, we, we, we knew we wanted to work with them for the R and D and they knew they wanted to work with us for the R and D as well. What did uh, they bring to it? Um, well, I think Nadia, um, I feel like her sense of deaf horror, um, was really important because Nadia is deaf, uh, and is very like culturally, um, capital D deaf as, as we say in, in, uh, in, the UK when we're talking about deaf people, like she has a political deaf identity as well as uh, right. being deaf. Um, uh, and yeah, I think her, her perspective on like deaf horror um, and um, kind of visual horror um, was really important in terms of the storytelling. Uh, right. And I think Tom um uh, so Tom, as you know, is also my husband, although we weren't married <laughs> at that point. No. Um, and he's, uh, yeah, he just like got the text in a way that was like pretty extraordinary. Like he just read it very clearly from the jump. Um, and, uh, and he's used to devising processes. So I sort of wasn't sure quite what he would do with like a, like a, just a big chunk of weird text, but, um, but he really like made it very clear and understandable from the start because he's fucking used to me wittering on it. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, uh, and then because Tom is also a professional drummer and singer, uh, we were like, well, how about like, can we find a drum set? Um, and the assistant director could find a drum set. And then it was like, when we, when we saw Nadia signing, and Tom speaking and drumming. It was like, that was like a really big moment of crystallization, I think. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and yeah, and like saw also what he was doing physically beyond the drum set, of course. But like, yeah, it was like, ooh, there was suddenly like oof, that extra energy uh, that the text needed was like in the room. Uh, and it doesn't, it feels significant that actually um, the director for the Stuckmacht, um she also is including a deaf woman and a drummer, um, which is like, I just, I think that's a kind of an interesting coincidence. Um, I don't know. What was it like at the Royal Court? What was it like playing it at the Royal Court? Um, It was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I felt like we had, there are not that many people who can really confidently note a text like that. And Vicky Featherston is one of them. And Jane Fallowfield is one of them. And Lucy Morrison is one of them. Yeah. And they were all really key in, um, in making sure that the text communicated itself, yeah. uh, which I am incredibly grateful for. Yeah. I mean, there are no words. Um, and yeah, and also like, yeah, it's a, in, in my experience, it's a really nice building. It's a building full of nice people um, who are really committed to doing cool stuff. Um, uh, yeah, it was a total pleasure to work there. The um, and nice to return to the place where you'd done the group. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I I took a photo of my um, 
my casta like discount card for the bar in the place <laughs> in the room where, where we were rehearsing which was also the room where I'd done the group uh nice. and yeah I, yeah it's, I treasure that one of the things which I most admire about your theatrical work and there's many things I think I've celebrated a lot of them one of the things which I'm fascinated by as well is your commitment to making theatre accessible to uh, yeah tell me about that tell me how integral that is in in your thinking am I right in in kind of arguing that it's integral not just to the conditions of work but to the work itself yeah um uh I don't know I mean I don't know you I really wouldn't want to position myself as like knowing stuff that I don't know or having a more advanced access practice than I actually do. Um, because I'm, I'm really trying to learn. And like part of why you're constant, one is constantly learning in this regard is that like human bodies are just so diverse and their needs are so varied. Um, and that's part of the incredible creativity that is unlocked when you admit a wider range of bodies into the room. Um, but also that means that I don't necessarily know anything about anything. Um, but, um, something that I think is, is something that I want to make a precondition of all of my work forever, um, is to always have captions. And the reason is that, um, the play as it's performed is never exactly as it is in the captions. Uh, and what that means is when you see the space, it's like, it's it's actually liveness made visible like uh. and it's like it's like you 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 understand what theater is in a in a different way and that in some way yeah making that conflict between like the idea of the thing and the actual thing uh present on stage um is uh is deeply exciting to me and i think mm-hmm. it's one of the things that uh it's just uh a kind of a symbol of a lot of what access work is where people sort of assume, I don't know, maybe I'm being unfair, but I feel like there's a lot of, Oh, we need to do it. Don't we? Oh, but it's so expensive. Oh, but the little disabled, you know, we need to include them. Don't we really? Um, And it's like, no, these are radical formal gestures that you are, that you are failing to consider. Um, uh, And these are important. I don't know. uh, Certain things about like the philosophy of theater um, become tangible in a different way, yeah. uh, which again, for German listeners, um, the idea that, uh, actors might respond to something that's going on in the audience is, uh, not that fresh of an idea. And it's not super fresh in the UK either. Like it's been happening for quite a long time, but at the mm-hmm. same time, like there's in the, in the new writing tradition, like oftentimes actors don't really feel empowered to yeah. respond if something unexpected happens right uh and if you're like this this space is for people with unpredictable bodies this space is for the live and unexpected things happening um uh like it oh man like everything changes like every i like so much dumb repressive energy just like is unlocked and reveals itself as something totally different and really exciting. It's really inspiring. Thanks, pal. Thanks, pal. <laughs> Travel's been important to you for so much of your work. I mean, one of the sadnesses of the virtual Stucker market is that we can't get to go to Berlin together. And yeah. <laughs> kind of the idea of hanging out with all of the artists I've met this week together around the fire pit at the Theater Treffen uh, in the Berliner Festspieler is such an exciting idea. I'm really, I'm really frustrated that we're not. We need able to make to do it that. happen in 2022. <laughs> but um, are you aware that travel is something that's integral? And by travel, I would guess I mean not just the physical process of travel, but the process of being dislocated or displaced, being an immigrant or an emigre. Would you agree that that's something that's kind of percolates through a lot of your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and also the sense of um, speaking a different English in some way to certainly to English people, but uh, also um, like, I feel like that I didn't necessarily 
understand until I was older that the English that I grew up speaking in New York, like certainly the English in my home was heavily inflected with Yiddish. Um, and there's actually something I've had to make a conscious effort to do in my relationship is use the Yiddish words rather than um, I've gotten really used to translate to thinking in Yiddish and then translating. Um, and I just want uh, him to learn the Yiddish. I don't want to be translating in that context. So, um, uh, so I do that. Uh, and he's, he's, He's a good learner, <laughs> um, uh, but That's really um, lovely. yeah, um, and um, I think that yeah, the the sense of somehow um, being between languages or having a secret language, like there's a, a weird running joke in my family about um, people pretending not to speak languages that they actually do, <laughs> uh, like um, there's like my um, my one granddad pretended not to speak Yiddish when he did. Uh, grandmother on the other side pretended not to speak English. But like when she wanted to speak English, she like devastatingly did. She said exactly what she wanted to say. Um, uh, and um, uh, yeah. Uh, and also, yeah, I, I feel like that kind of sense of there's a word for this, um, but it doesn't belong to this it doesn't belong to this place. It belongs to somewhere else. Um, and then, and also a feeling of like, uh, which comes from Yiddish uh, of like, if we put this into words, um, it's, it's dangerous. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, like someone, I don't know, like that there are certain things that can't be put into words or that need to be, um, you need to do something anti-jinxy really quickly. If you should ever say anything about the future. Uh, that it's like, oh, we need to be really, we need to be really careful what we say because, on the one hand, we might make it happen, and on the other hand, we might ensure that it never happens by speaking. And I think that, um, yeah, that position that language occupies uh, is, uh, uh, yeah, hugely impactful in my work. Really compelling. It's really interesting that because you're the fifth of the artists regardless of what order these podcasts go out in you're the fifth of the artist or the sixth there's one of the artists is two artists working together the sixth person fifth artist that i've spoken to this week and in i would argue all of them all of the pieces there's this investigation of the impossibility and necessity of precision in language the impossibility of ever finding the right word and the need to find the right word and that paradoxical agony seems to define yeah. all five of the pieces. <laughs> it's really, I don't, somebody clever one day is going to write a thesis about what, what's happening with that, but it seems to be something that's happening with artists at the beginning of their working lives in 2021. I wonder if it's to do with, um, I feel that we're, yeah, we're obviously in a time of like enormous, especially like economic, political and ecological transition. And I feel like a lot of, uh, I feel like the official culture in uh, the UK, the US and Canada, where I guess we all come from or yeah, are part of the cultures there. Uh, I feel like the official culture is like, everyone is still, like basically everyone who thought the Iraq war would be a great idea is still like the talking heads <laughs> and it's still like the dominant political class. And, um, uh, and, um, and there's been no real reckoning with that or with, uh, economic collapse, uh, in 2018 or in, uh, 2008, um, or with, uh, the obvious and terrifying, uh, ecological collapse that we're currently experiencing. And I feel like, uh, yeah, it's because there isn't like a, a linguistic or an ideological framework for that to exist in the mainstream culture. Um, uh, that everyone's kind of strategy for dealing with all of this stuff is to simply pretend that it isn't happening. Not, not everyone, but um, uh, the kind of official culture in all of these places. Um, and, um, and, I, I wonder if that, if we are trying to find a, a language that's suitable for the times um, and if there's something 
dramatically interesting about about watching the effort and the failure in that context. It's really beautiful. I'm going to steal that from you and pretend that that was my idea. Good. <laughs> I'm not really. Tell me about your working day. Have you got an average working day? Um, well, it's funny because you massively shamed me when I said that my average working day started at 11 a few weeks ago. <laughs> or not, a few, a few, I guess a few months ago now. It's this year anyway. Um, I- Eleven is uh, my standard at the moment. That's terrible. If, uh, unless, unless well, actually, no. I think maybe. I think maybe I said I got up at eleven. Oh, getting uh, up at eleven. You didn't massively. You didn't massively <laughs> shame me. You were just like, really. <laughs> um, That's different. Uh, this is their. Yes, exactly. This is these two two aging punks quibbling <laughs> over getting up at eleven or just getting to your desk at eleven. Um, yeah, I. Um, I've been waking up uh, lately um, uh, because of the, I've been getting up uh, kind of earlier than that. Mm. Uh, or oh, so much earlier than that. Um, <laughs> I've been getting up at like, I don't know, uh, whenever my cat gets me up uh, to, to feed him. Uh, uh, but like around seven or eight uh, and then considering going back to sleep and instead, um, instead uh, chanting, uh, doing my doing my my chants, uh, doing my Buddhisms, uh, and then uh, and then eating and probably being at work. Uh, now this feels very loaded, but like so, uh, the last couple of weeks I've I've had commitments where I have to be at my desk at ten, and that's right. enjoyable. And you write through you just there, and you're writing. What else apart from your chanting is part of your working process? Um. Uh. I mean, Twitter, it's disgusting, but it's true. <laughs> uh, I feel like I like to, I feel like, I don't know, like my brain is like popping candy and it's like different things need to pop at different times. So I, I kind of need to have stuff happening on like parallel channels at the same time in order to, in order to make work. Uh, like I need to like pause for, pause for five minutes and then like come back to the thing. But like during the five minutes, I'll like, maybe I'll, I'll scroll on Twitter or like be on the internet anyway. Um, uh, there is a baby living in my house. It's not, it's not my baby, but, um, I really love that baby. Hmm. Sometimes the baby is part of my working day. Um, (laughs) uh, um, yeah, I, I like, um, drawing and listening to music um, uh, as part of my, I guess, like, uh, like I like dancing around my room to, mm. to music or, um, or lying down on the floor and looking up mm. and listening to music. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I like drawing um, really terrible drawings in my little, <laughs> in my little book. Uh, and I feel like those are important, yeah, ways of like, again, like ways of working on multiple channels at the same time. Yeah, yeah. How has the pandemic been for you as an artist, not necessarily as a human, but as an artist? Or is it too soon to tell? Yeah, I guess it's probably too soon to tell, but I have I have been very, um, uh, like I've been working a lot, which I've been incredibly grateful for. Uh, I've been very booked. Um, uh, because obviously like if you, like I've, I've written for games as like a lot as well. And that's part of, uh, I don't know. I feel like it feeds into my practice as a playwright. Um, and like, if they're they're like, Oh, like somebody who's really interested in the digital world and writes for games as well as for theater, let's hire her. Um, Mm. which has been amazing. Um, but also like, um, a, uh, a different, a friend has said that it feels like work has just like crashed through the walls. Um, and that's kind of how I felt as well. But I think that, again, there are beneficial things to that. Yeah. Crash through the walls in terms of it. Ju- it's just stopped. No. Uh, as in like, it's like work is like in my house, like sitting on right. my chest while I go to sleep. Like, right. in my, right. you know what I mean? Like, just like, like, it's like the walls are made up the way I picture it when somebody, when, when he said like work crashed through the walls, uh, I pictured it as like, just like 
that the, the walls turned to ocean water and just like fell. <laughs> um, and yeah, and you're sort of somehow, dr- you're like, you thought you were at home, but actually you're drowning in like work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, th- I think that's, I think that's a, uh, an experience that an awful lot of people re- will relate to, not just people working in the arts. Sure. You know, the, the this whole, this whole um, culture of people working at home and finding that more attractive um, uh, all of a sudden people are going to realise that work is also corrupting our home lives. But maybe that's a bleak thing. I don't want to end with a bleak thing. I'm interested in what your perception is of the years to come for you as a writer, for theatre in general. How are you feeling about coming out of the pandemic and what that offers you as a theatre maker? I feel... Um like there's a bit of a crossroads. I don't know. I think that, um, so something that I have been thinking for a while is that it's possible that we're in a golden age. Um, and that's a bit scary because our age is so imperfect. Like how can it be a goal? Like that's horrible. Like what? Um, but I mean, creatively like that, that British arts, European arts uh, might be, in a golden age. Um, and I'm, I'm worried about that ending the period of state subsidy, potentially ending like all of this, but I also feel like there has been so much injustice and violence that has been part of that age. And I wonder I don't know. I just have a lot of, I have a lot of faith in people. Um, I think it's possible that all of these cataclysms that are in progress um, are inviting us to build different and more inspired structures of being together. And I and I feel like we might well have to say goodbye to a lot of things, hopefully not state subsidy, but um, a lot of um, existing assumptions in order to like, sorry, I, I hope I'm being, I'm not being clear. Um, I feel like a lot of the time it's much easier to anticipate what you will lose than it is to anticipate what you'll gain once those things are no longer there. Um, and that's what I'm trying to think to myself is like, try not to worry about the stuff that may be lost. Try and think about the new ways of being together that have yet to be uncovered. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's part of the reason, like it's, it's, uh, one of the things keeping me going. <laughs> that's really beautiful. Thank you. Eve Lee, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you very much, Simon Stevens and Anishka and Emily. You've been listening to a special episode of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt 2020-21 at the Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. It was produced by Emily Legg and Anushka Warden for the Royal Court Theatre. All five of the pieces talked about on this series, the five shows selected by the jurors of this year's Stucker Market, are available online at the Theatre Treffen website. From the 18th of May, 2021, there's a link for the website on the show notes. The music for this series was by and given with permission from the brilliant Derek. Derek.